Psalm 74, which is similar to other scriptural laments, was written to capture and express Old Testament Israelite sorrow and grief. You see, for Israel, whether in the Old or New Testament periods, mourning was an all-too-common feature in the life of God's people. Not only did Israel suffer from natural events, but they also suffered at the hands of their neighbors, and sometimes these afflictions were a result of their own sinfulness. Regarding the backdrop of Psalm 74, it's believed that the kingdom of Judah, that this is the text, the context for Psalm 74, that the kingdom of Judah had experienced an unthinkable loss of the, as a result of the people's sin because of the destruction of Solomon's temple and the fall of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Moreover, God's people were not only mourning the loss of their city and loss of their temple, but they were dealing with collectively and individually with the affliction directed at them by their enemies. This morning's passage that highlights this horrible reality and the psalmist's, Asaph's reaction to this tragedy. For our narrator in our text today, there is a deep eternal struggle to understand and explain on behalf of Israel and himself, not just why this happened, but even more importantly, whether God was going to do anything in response. And as Christians, for you and I, these questions deeply resonate with us, since as God's people, we also experience various trials and tribulations. With this backdrop and these concerns and questions in mind, let us again turn to God's word and ask that the Holy Spirit may enlighten our hearts. I'm going to reread this text for us, even though it's 23 verses, because it's important to hear God's word. Let's read Psalm 74 again. O God, why do you cast us off forever? And why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you purchased of old, which you redeemed by the tribe, which is the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. 
you have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Let us now go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you feed us daily and weekly by your Holy Spirit through the prayers of your people, through the preached word, through study, through the fellowship of the believers, but because you, Lord Jesus, continually make intercession for us always. We pray now that you would be praying for us and interceding for us that we may digest and understand this portion of your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would not just be hearers, but doers as well. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. My friends, history is replete with terrible events. In fact, there's an ongoing debate amongst historians as to which years qualify as the worst on record. Of the historical lists I surveyed this week, the following years and corresponding events are mostly unanimous within academic circles as being considered the worst ever, at least within late antiquity to modern history. The years 1939 to 45, which marks the beginning and the horrors and tragedy of World War II. The Black Tuesday stock market crash of 1929. The 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. The years 1914 through 18, which mark the horrors of World War I. The global food shortage of 1816, which was dubbed as the year without summer the 1520s smallpox pandemic in the Americas, year 1347, which marks the beginning of the Black Death in Eurasia, the 541 plague of Justinian, which marks an earlier Eurasian bubonic plague event, the year 536, which marks a severe global food shortage also during Emperor Justinian's reign. And finally, for many historians, the more recent 2020-21 COVID pandemic. Now, excluding a few select within this room and some others that we know beyond these walls, the only aforementioned year or event that we've experienced from this list has been the last one. And while debates are ongoing regarding the severity of COVID in comparison to these other tragedies, whether COVID was man-made or naturally occurring, whether our response to COVID was appropriately measured in any way, there is one thing that is not up for debate, the huge effect it had on the whole world. For me personally, the COVID pandemic brought about the end of my PhD studies for approximately six months. In fact, the administration of the school I attended in DFW outright canceled my program, despite the academic and financial healthiness of the department. You see, the administration used the pandemic as cover for their institutional realignment plans, or so they purported. 
It was only later by God's kind intervention that my colleagues and I were able to restart our studies after the program was picked up by another school out of state. Now many of you have tragic stories you could share from 2020 or of others you know who lost jobs, lost money, homes, friendships, time, unrealized dreams, and maybe even loved ones. Like me, you've probably looked back on it all and wondered, why did this happen? What was the point of all of this? Why did we have to suffer in this manner? And where was God in all of this? If you do wonder, if you ask those questions, if you think internally, internally about this, you're not alone. Our psalmist in Psalm 74 felt the same way and asked similar questions. While the destruction of Solomon's temple in the city of the fall of the city of Jerusalem did not make any of the top 10 lists I surveyed, 586 was not a banner year in the life of Israel. In fact, it was a terribly infamous watershed year for Israel. You see, all of Israel's economic, political, social, and religious life centered around this city and its sanctuary. It was the focal point of the world and of God's dwelling place. For them, the destruction of the city and the temple entered life as they knew it, plunging them into chaos and darkness. In fact, that's how Jesus prophetically spoke about the destruction of Herod's temple, a second temple destruction event in Matthew 24, an event that occurred 656 years later in the New Testament. But what made the event of Psalm 74 all the more unpalatable for our psalmist was seeing Israel's enemies seemingly get away with their wickedness. Likewise, for us, it is also easy to despair and question God's love in the face of suffering, especially when those who caused it seem to escape justice. That's how I felt about my PhD program being shut down especially when I later learned that funds were improperly used by the administration for personal gain. However, regardless of whether that suffering is caused by others, and that suffering seemingly goes unpunished on this side of eternity, because of God's covenant faithfulness to us, justice will ultimately be delivered on that last great day. But until that time arrives, how are we to live and respond in the face of our own suffering and the suffering of other believers, especially when the wicked are the cause of the suffering and often prosper at the expense of the righteous? If you find yourself wondering about this, well, then I have good news for you this morning. So, Jeff, what is our starting point? Where do we begin? Well, I have three points for you this morning, three gospel truths to share with you, and here is our first point. Because the wicked often prosper at the expense of the righteous, we must call out for God's mercy. Look again at these three key verses, verses 1, 10, and 11. They all open with questions. The psalmist says, O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? And why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture how long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? And why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? 
Within this first section of Psalm 74, our psalmist poses some very serious questions to God. But despite the seeming hopelessness of these questions, the dire situation that Israel finds herself in, and the apparent silence and inactivity of God, the psalmist's questions, I think, are actually grounded. They're actually rooted in faith, not doubt. You see, the struggle our psalmist is dealing with has more to do with the length of the punishment, not the punishment itself. That's why he asks, How long, O God, and is the enemy to revile your name forever? The psalmist and people, they're profoundly aware that they brought about the Babylonian destruction upon themselves as a result of their own covenant unfaithfulness. And by the way, this reality, it's richly expounded upon in the book of Lamentations. I would encourage you to go and read those five chapters. But despite Israel's sin and God's discipline of it, the questions posed about the length of the punishment, they still presuppose that Israel belongs to God, that they are still his people. Because, because tucked away within these questions is this key phrase. I don't know if you caught it. It says this, the sheep of your pasture. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a very comforting statement. Even though the phrase is preceded by the words, why does your anger smoke against? It's comforting because it expresses the psalmist's belief that Israel still is God's treasured possession. It expresses the belief that Israel is still God's special people, his firstborn son. It expresses the belief that Israel is still loved by God and that there is still a relational connection despite everything that has happened. More often than not, growing up, when I disobeyed my parents, I was disciplined. I'm sure that was the case in your homes. In fact, I can remember one particular occasion where my sin was quite grievous. You see, I'd been failing pre-algebra in eighth grade the whole first semester every assignment. But instead of giving my parents these failed assignments, I decided to forge my father's signature on every last assignment, quiz, and test. I was eventually caught when my teacher mailed the whole semester's worth of forged papers to my father. Needless to say, it did not go well for me in the aftermath of it all. Despite the punishment I received, though, which I deserved, at no time did I ever think that my parents hated me or that they were going to disown me. Their discipline was restorative in nature and grounded in love. Now, this example from my life may reflect the type of experiences that you've had growing up, or it may not. Some of you may have not had parents who disciplined in this manner. Some of you may have had parents who withheld their love because of something that you did wrong. But I am here to tell you, my friends, that is not God. He does not love you capriciously, and he is not vindictive toward you. This is what the author of Hebrews has to say about this matter in chapter 12. Verses 5 through 10 read this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, 
then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness, which later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Even though Israel, even though Israel's sin brought about the destruction of the temple and the city and their own misery, because the psalmist knew Israel was God's congregation of old and the redeemed tribe of his heritage, there was still hope that everything was going to be all right, that the punishment would end, that they would be restored, and that justice toward their enemies would be served. So whether you find yourself personally, whether you find a friend suffering due to your own sin or their own sin or the sin of others, and that the sin leads to the wicked prospering at your expense, as it did here in our text in Psalm 74, remember that you are still the sheep of God's pasture and therefore are able to call out to him for mercy. You see, our, our psalmist, Asaph, he didn't hide from he didn't ignore, he didn't try to fix his and the people's sin, but instead went to the author of this suffering. The psalmist oriented himself toward and spoke to God with questions, as well as praying back to God about the things that God had done for Israel in the past. And, and why did he do this? Because the psalmist understood that the way through suffering was through the mercy of God. Even though they didn't deserve it, they had access to it because they were still God's sheep, and he was still their shepherd. This is why the psalmist follows up with his questions by asking God to remember. Remember your congregation. Remember Mount Zion. Remember everything that our enemies did to us, how they destroyed your sanctuary, mocked your people, and even scoffed at you. And so the psalmist, as we read recounted for God in great detail everything their enemies did to them in verses 3 through 11. And everything the Babylonians did that challenged God's word, God's promises, and God's redemptive activity on behalf of Israel that happened there in the city at the temple. But it's not as if God was unaware of what happened or ignorant of these details. No, the psalmist was appealing to God's zeal and love for his people, the psalmist was reminding God of his covenant obligations to them. You see, you may not know this, but God loves when we pray back to him his promises, the promises that he has made to his sheep. Because praying back these promises, it's really an act of reverence. It's an act of submission. It's an act of dependence. And it's an act of worship. And reminding God of his promises is also a way for us to remember those promises that God has made. And that leads us to our second point, and it's this. Because the wicked often prosper at the expense of the righteous, we must remember God's goodness. Look again at verse 12. It reads, Yet God, my king, he is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And asking God to remember his promises, the psalmist in Israel first need to remember God's goodness to them. 
And the good thing they need to remember in the midst of this tragedy, their suffering, the prospering wicked, is that God is their king who works salvation, salvation in the midst of the earth. You see, God, he is a king who saves. And how does he save? By being the king who redeems people, especially people that by all accounts are not even worth saving. That's actually Israel's own origin story, a story which is highlighted in Deuteronomy 7. Verses 6 through 8 read, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Compared to the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Babylonians, all the ancient peoples of the, of the Near East, Israel was insignificant. However, Israel's insignificance, it did not matter to God. He loved Israel in spite of their insignificance. However, Israel, they had forgotten their origin story. Israel forgot that God was the king of old, that God was the king who served them and saved them in ages past, that God is good, and so they needed to remember. They needed to remember that God is the one who broke the heads of the sea monsters and crushed the heads of Leviathan. They needed to remember that God created the world and everything within it. They needed to remember that God established the boundaries and the seasons of the earth. And that's the same thing for us, my friends. We need to remember. We need to remember God's goodness in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the mocking and the scoffing and the prospering wicked. Because, God's, because remembering God's goodness, it's, it's a faith-building exercise for us. When we remember what God has done for us in the past, whether in our response to our sin, in spite of our sin, or because of other people's sin, we can hope in God for the present and then also for the future. However, remembering God's goodness is more than just the retelling of past stories or the recollection of facts. Remembering is, is actually about understanding the true reality behind the redemptive act, fact, or story being recalled. My friends, God is greater and more powerful than my sin, your sin, other sin, the suffering of the righteous, and the prospering of the wicked. The psalmist understood this reality, and that's why he recounted the deeds of God's goodness before the people in verses 12 through 17. They needed to remember that the God that would have done stuff for them in the past for them, they would do it again in the future and even in this present time. Israel needed to remember that God's character is one of covenant keeping, that God's character is one of covenant faithfulness, and we need to remember this always as well. Which leads us to our third and final point, and that is, because the wicked often prosper at the expense of the righteous, we must hope in God's faithfulness. Now that the psalmist remembers and is recalled before the people God's goodness, his lament becomes a forceful plea, 
a forceful plea that God would be merciful and act upon his goodness for the sake of his sheep. You see, no longer is the psalmist asking questions or recounting God's deeds of old, but he is imploring God. He is calling him to action. And so we read within verses 18 through 23 these key phrases. Remember this, O Lord. Have regard. Do not deliver. Let and let not and arise. In the Hebrew, half of the verbs are imperative in form and thus imply the psalmist is actually commanding God. He's saying this is a necessity. But what would give the psalmist such boldness to make demands of the king of old? Well, the psalmist's boldness comes from remembering that God is always faithful to his promises, that God is always faithful to his covenant people, no matter the circumstances that they find themselves in, that they have put themselves in. And though Psalm 74 never clarifies whether or when God acted, we know based on other scripture texts that God did act and that he acted in ways that not even the psalmist could have anticipated. You see, within God's redemptive plans, there is always a short and long-term fulfillment of his promises. The short-term fulfillment is that God does, not, God does punish the Babylonians for the wickedness and that he does relieve the suffering of the Israelites. He does this through the Persians, who 47 years later conquer Babylon. And then shortly after, the emperor, King Cyrus, allows the Israelites to return home. But not just to return home, but to start to rebuild and even to self-govern. But beyond this judgment and mercy, there is still yet a greater judgment and mercy to come. The judgment and mercy of God that is brought forth in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the difference between the former judgment and mercy with the latter judgment and mercy is that the latter judgment and mercy is everlasting because it fully and completely deals with the sin of the world, the sin of the righteous, and even the sin of the wicked. Because not only is God good and faithful to the sheep of his pasture, but he is also so very kind, so very gracious, so very merciful, that he is invited, as Jesus spoke in John 10, he has invited other sheep, which are not of his fold, into his pasture. The Gentiles, his enemies, which we were and are counted amongst. While the suffering of Israel was difficult, while our suffering is difficult, especially when the enemies triumph over us and cause us to ask us questions as, How long, O Lord? As well as to make such demands as, O God, remember your covenant. The delay in justice is not a result of God's lack of care, his slack, or because he is inactive, but because he is giving the impenitent, the enemies of God, time to repent, just as he did with Israel and just as he does with us. This is why Paul tells the Athenians in Acts 17 that the times of ignorance are over. Paul is imploring, he is begging his Greek audience to accept the gospel message because he knows that the day is coming when God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Because Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, because Jesus Christ has lived a sinless life, because Jesus Christ died on the cross, atoned for sin, and rose from the dead, because Jesus Christ continually lives forever to make intercession for us, all peoples now have access to God's covenant promises if they would but only repent, believe, and trust in the one who has sent 
to save them. The Ancient of Days, the King from of old, the prophesied Savior of Zechariah's song. My friends, God is bringing about his perfect plan within your lives, just as he did with Israel, and especially amidst your suffering. It is not in vain I am here to tell you that. Your suffering is not in vain. God has not forgotten you. No, through your suffering, you are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. But God is also working his will out within the lives of his and our enemies, that he might even win some before the day of judgment. This is why Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross. But because of God's mercy, because of his goodness, because of his faithfulness, we, the sheep of his pasture, in the midst of the suffering and the prospering of the wicked, must call, remember, and hope in the Lord, the one who always remembers his covenant. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we stand before you as the sheep of your pasture, and we confess, Father, that we sin against you, but you have been merciful to us, and we ask, Lord, in that mercy that you would also extend that even to our very enemies. But Lord, do not let our suffering go unpunished, but hear our calls and cries. But we ask also, that, Lord, that you would hear the calls and cries of the wicked, that you would save them as you did with us. Meet your people, Lord. Be faithful to your covenant. Save a people unto yourself. Lord, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.